Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're in 1 Kings 19, 1-18, the story of Elijah's encounter with God on Mount Horeb. We talk about Elijah's journey into the wilderness and God's miraculous offering of bread for the difficult journey ahead. Think about God's appearance to Elijah as a still, small voice, and wonder why God sometimes appears as a pillar of fire, but here as a nearly inaudible whisper. And we wrestle with the threat of violence, both divine and human, and wonder when we, like Elijah, might need to take a step back from our zealousness. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm good. How are you? I just noticed I'm recording right now in my spouse's office at her church because that's where I get Wi-Fi. And there is uh, sitting next to the wall over there, a tiger, like a, not a real tiger. Because <laughs> 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 like I'm very calm if there's a real tiger. In <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But it is sort of a, like a stuffed tiger, which is about probably as tall as me. And it's wearing a COVID mask and it's making me, it's making me laugh right now. I do not know your wife as well as I would like to, but this does (laughs) not seem off-brand from what I know. It is very much on-brand, yes. I actually really, really like that. When my um, son was little, there was outside the elementary school, there was like a a tail from a stuffed tiger that, I don't know, I guess had fallen off some decrepit stuffed animal. Yeah. And he thought it was a real... Tiger tail. Like a real tiger had lost his tail. Uh-huh. And so, Yeah. And so he thought, no, this was exciting to him that there were like tiger fights outside the elementary school <laughs> every night. And we would find Ooh. like little bedraggled tiger limbs. So every day he would go and see if there was what he understood to be another tiger tail. Oh, wow. From another late night tiger fight. Yeah. And did he ever yeah. find anything else? No, but the tail was there for a long time. So every time he saw it, he thought it was a new tail. Were you ever tempted to like buy a stuffed tiger and then like <laughs> cut parts of it off? <laughs> Here's a paw. Yeah. <laughs> I, should, I should do that in our house now and see There's if I can trick him. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Good I grew up times. in Clemson, South Carolina, home of the, the tigers who were once mighty, but this year are, you know, I mean, they're like, like, they're more like, yeah, they're like, <laughs> uh, but. In that world, you get you buy a little tiger tail that hooks onto the trunk of your car. And so your car has like a little tiger tail. I think I've seen those. Yeah. Hmm. Very Maybe that's good. what it was that it had fallen been. off. Yeah, that's what I was Clemson thinking. It was, I bet there was a Clemson fan. My school mascot was an owl, so there's not really anything you could like have like a big owl eye. Stuck oh, did y'all have like an know. owl? Was you'd have like a battle cry? Like, whoo-hoo! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you did uh, anything good, whoo-hoo! I can't, <laughs> I can't say I went to a lot of sporty ball games, so I don't really know what happened to them. Anywho. All right. So, Amy, we were talking about mm. Elijah the prophet, which is the who is the hero, I guess, or the main character 
in our text today, which is 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18. Yes. What do we need to know about things, I guess? Last time we talked, we were at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 5 and 8. Now, we're not that far, not much later. We're in 1 Kings 19, talking about Elijah. What do we need to know to get us ready for this text? So here are the couple things that stand out to me and then layer in the other things that I've missed. So Solomon goes through his reign. You know, we talked about last time. He's very wise. He's very rich. He's very savvy. um, He's very powerful. And he's got these clear international connections already in the text that we were reading about building the temple. And over the course of his kingship, like by the end of his kingship, he's got like, I don't know, a thousand women in his harem or something and Mm -hmm. seems to be increasingly influenced by things outside of Israel, which is a big concern for the religion of Israel. There's a lot of, you know, concern about letting in other ideas. And there is this big biblical fear, whether it's reasonable or not, that, that a primary way that those foreign influences, those idolatrous ideas would come into Israel would be through relationships with women who come from other cultures or religions. Yeah. So Solomon dies and basically it just goes downhill from there. Like each <laughs> each successive king afterwards is, is, is a little worse in terms yeah. of treatment of the people and in terms of being able to hold on to really the core uh, monotheistic practices of Israel. Yeah. So by the time we get here and are meeting Elijah, I mean, I think that that when we start reading the text, we're going to talk a little more specifically about the chapter right before this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they, the king is Ahab and is married to a woman named Jezebel. And I mean, and basically things are just really have moved towards ball worship. Like <laughs> there's yeah. just, there's, there's a lot of sort of infiltration of other religious cults coming into the, the people of Israel. And yeah, Elijah's not excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To say the least. That's right. Yeah. I think it was implied in what you were saying, but I'm not sure that we said it out loud, which is yeah. that the kingdom after Solomon has split in two. North and South. Oh, yeah. That's an important one. (laughs) (laughs) So Israel is the name taken by the Northern Kingdom, which has its capital in Samaria, which is where our story today is set. The king there is Ahab, which historically speaking is maybe mid-9th century, like around 850 or somewhere around there, roughly. The Southern Kingdom, Judah, has its capital in Jerusalem and is where the Davidic kingship continues on with Solomon's son, Rehoboam. It does not go well there either. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the biblical authors are particularly hard on the northern kingdom of Israel where this text is is set today. Yes. One other thing that's useful in my mind, I don't know what you'll think about this, is uh, being influenced as I am by my teacher, Walter Brueggemann, when he thinks about religious idolatry, Baal worship, he is almost always also thinking about economic practices. And it's not entirely clear, you know, I don't know. There's Those things are all tied up together, obviously, in the biblical text. But when he reads Baal worship, he is also reading Canaanite economic practices, which he reads as sort of exploitative, uh, acquisition-oriented, you know, that 
the sort of thing we saw with Pharaoh in Egypt. Mm. And so when this text is going to certainly be about religious idolatry, it may also be about some kind of false economic practices. There may be more opportunity to talk about that as we go, but any thoughts about that sort of take on it? It's not a, not a purely religious concern. I am intrigued. I mean, I think, <laughs> no, I, th- yeah. I think certainly as we've talked about a lot, like the economy is all wrapped up in religious practices. Yeah. Like there's no, we, we need not fool ourselves to think that they are not tied into each other. So I will be, so, so part of my first thought was like, we, we shouldn't just say it's other people that do that because we all yeah. do it too. But yeah, but I haven't read that. I don't think specifically in this text before. So I, yeah. We'll look forward to that conversation. Yeah. And, you know, with Brueggemann, it's the, the point is exactly that we do it too. Yeah. But the point is, like, the God of Israel has given us a different way to live, and that's supposed mm-hmm. to be our way, but we keep mm-hmm. doing it the other way. And so this is not simply they're bad, we're good. Yeah. But, like, yeah. that system is bad, and there is another system that is good, and we've got to pick which one are we going to be. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how that develops as we go. Okay, so today we are in 1 Kings 19, 1 to 18. And there's a little more background that we're going to give, but we'll give it in terms of this first little section of text. I'm reading 19, 1 to 3. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. Okay, so clearly this text is referring to some important backstory. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he killed the prophets. What do we need to know about that? Yeah, I haven't read chapter 18 in a while, but here's here's my recollection of, of what just went down. So Elijah is trying to prove to the people that Baal is not is not really a god and doesn't have any power, whereas the God of Israel does. And so he sets up this like <laughs> like divine challenge course thing, sort of. Yeah. Where there's is this right? There's an offering to the God of Israel and there's an offering to Baal and they set them up and are basically like, come get your offering, God. Like set, send fire down to get it. Yeah. And Elijah does everything he can to give the advantage to the other team and like pours water on the offering <laughs> yeah. of the God of Israel and all that stuff. And and finally, eventually it becomes, you know, the God of Israel's fire swoops down and takes that offering and and for Baal we get nothing. So it'd be nice if the story kind of ended there, but yeah. it doesn't. <laughs> no, it does um, not. So so Elijah is pretty like jazzed about his victory and and takes it as a um, imperative or a license. I don't know to then kill all the people who had declared themselves prophets of Baal because now he has this like evidence that there is no Baal and so you're not a prophet of anything and you're. You're just leading us astray. So, I mean, Jezebel is, uh, you know, she's obviously kind of mad. Yeah. (laughs) So she is threatening Elijah back. How do you process, like, I don't know, like, what's your read of the character Jezebel and what what motivates her in this text? Oh, gosh. I mean, well, in in this particular line, it's, uh, it, 
like, it strikes me as so, like, the godfather, like, mafia, you know, which is, which doesn't, doesn't really answer your question, but I guess in, you know, in, in our particular text, this is, this is all we've seen her, her, like, she, that, that was a big, a big blow to her. Yeah. And to sort of the, the power that she has within the people. Yeah. So the fact that she would want to retaliate, I think, makes sense. But I think the, I don't know, I think the particular turn of phrase that's used here makes it seem very, very mafia, which maybe is, maybe is an appropriate metaphor in some way. I don't know, like the way that power structures were, well, maybe not. They were, they were pretty, maybe not. Maybe this is not like the Godfather. I just want to talk about the Godfather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, but it's, but you're right. It's like a, it's a pretty strong threat, but it's, but it's sort of, it's delivered by a messenger who does not seem to be about to enact the threat. Like he, she didn't exactly. send that person to kill him. She sent That's that person right. to and tell it him. Se- and it seems yeah. like someone of her stature in the society should be able to just, just go do it. Like if you're yeah. going to go knock him off, go knock him off. Don't warn him because then he's going to yeah. leave. But if you warn him, you like, you know, twist the knife. Like there's that fear part of it, that recognition that this other person has power. To me, this is like the old Batman series, like the original Batman series with Adam West that was on TV when I was growing up in syndication. And the, you know, the Joker, whoever would always capture Batman and they could, and could have just like gotten rid of Batman, but instead sets up some kind of elaborate trap that's like, when, you know, when the clock strikes three, then you're going to, I don't know, be swung by your ankles and (laughs) on the clock until. Yeah, right. But then Batman escapes and that sort of, I love how you go Godfather and I go (laughs) Batman. Batman. (laughs) But the point is the same. Jezebel's interesting to me, like you were raising your the issue of power, which I think is exactly right. This is a blow to her power. The 450 prophets of Baal, that was her, like her entourage. Yeah. Uh, she is Phoenician, actually. Ahab has married a Phoenician queen. And these are like the, like this is her God and her people. And so it, she's kind of an interesting figure here because she's not an Israelite who has turned her back on God. She right. is a God. Phoenician who already was a Baal worshiper. And so this is an attack in some way on her people, on her God, on her culture. So I think she's rightly very angry about it. But one of the things that's really interesting to me in this text, in the light of what you were telling us about the previous text, is Elijah has just demonstrated very clearly who is God in Israel and who is not. Fire Mm -hmm. has rained down from heaven Mm-hmm. When the God of Israel has called fire down, or when Elijah has called fire down from the God of Israel, fire has not come down from anywhere when the prophets of Baal called on Baal. Like, if you want proof about who is God, like, boom, there it's it is. A, as good as it's going to get. Yeah. And so in some sense, Elijah, he's he's called down this fire. He's done a miracle. He's gotten rid of the prophets of Baal. Like, this ought to be, the matter ought to be decided right now. He's at the moment of his victory. And it turns out it hasn't affected Jezebel at all. Right. She's like, still, I'm going to I'm going to use my power. So this would be pretty depressing. I mean, I think it is depressing for Elijah, as we'll see just in in just a minute. But uh, she is very stubborn about ignoring this miracle. I guess she hasn't seen it because Ahab told her about it. 
But Any, anything you do with that, that idea? The, you know, it's so interesting that you put it that way because I was, I came at it first from almost the opposite side of like, hmm. what exactly did Elijah think was going to happen? Like, did he yeah. think he wasn't going to get, you know, a, a call for his death after this? Yeah. But your point is a good one. Like, if it seems like this should be irrefutable proof. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's that that Jezebel didn't see it, or, you know, we don't know exactly how Ahab told Jezebel what happened, but... Yeah. Yeah, she's not having this in her kingdom. This is one of the... Every now and then, you know, when you read the text and you think, like, what if this text went differently than it does, which I know is a futile mm. effort. That's a But fun with game. this text... You know, I always wonder what would happen if this text, if Elijah had called down fire from heaven, the contest was settled, but there was no murder of the prophets. Yeah. Jezebel's got two stakes in this thing. One is her God has been defeated, and the other is that her entourage of prophets have been murdered. And so, you know, you kind of, one wonders, I think, if the miracle of... God's power had not been then mingled mm. with mm-hmm. violence on in God's name. Maybe a different kind of persuasion could have been possible. You know, that's true because there's not, after the fire does come down from God and it seems like this dispute has been resolved, there's no pause to say like, okay, so who's with the God of Israel <laughs> and yeah. who's with Baal still? It's just immediate. Yeah. I was looking back in verse eight, in chapter 18, 39, the people saw the fire. They fell down and said, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Mm. And the story could end right there. And then the next verse, Elijah says, seize the prophets of Baal and don't right. let any of them escape. So there is a conversion. People do believe. Right. And right. then Elijah. Right. So this really feels just like punitive. Yeah. All right. So anything else you want to say about that little introduction? The only thing I want to add in there is that I have a, a text note that is that I find very interesting, although your translation is the same as mine. At the beginning of verse 3, when it says that he is frightened, mm. there is, uh, my note says there's a manuscript issue that some manuscripts say frightened, and some manuscripts just say, and he saw. Yeah. Like he, he saw, he saw, he realized. And I, I mean, yeah. like, I know we can't resolve, we're not going to be able to resolve a textual issue. But whether he ran off out of fear or out of some kind of unspecified awareness, yeah, really, I don't know that that really shapes the like tenor of the story, yeah, to me. It really does, and in, in the you know in Hebrew, of course, the difference between he saw and he feared is just one little yod, yeah, vayar, and just like vayira. the smallest letter, <laughs> yeah. The Masoretic text is Vayar, and he saw. And some manuscript traditions are Vayira, and he feared. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, actually, that both of our translations chose to go with the minority chose to go tradition. With it. That's right. Usually my translation goes with the Masoretic text, but yeah. it did not here. I like that. What's the difference if it's just he's, he, he saw what was happening. He understood. Right. Uh, he got it, and he, and, he, and he ran instead of he was afraid. Mm-hmm. Is the Hebrew also is just Vayelech, uh, which, you know, the NRSV translated as he was afraid and he fled. But mm-hmm. it could just be he saw and he left, right? That's he, right. And he went. Mm-hmm. And he went, yep. So yep. the emotionality. And, my, and mine is the same. Yeah, frightened. He fled at once is yeah. the, 
is the JPS translation. I like when there's multiple possibilities, as you yeah, know. Yeah, right. I like I like the I like the two of them. I don't I don't know which one I like better. Yeah, but, um, they do different things. Mm-hmm. They do different things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so picking up then in verse four, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Okay, there's so many resonances in this text with other things. Yeah, so many, so many, so many. Where does your head go first when you when you read this little vignette? Okay, my head goes first to a meme that I saw. <laughs> of course it does. Which was <laughs> uses this story to emphasize the importance of how much better things are when you've had a nap and a snack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that Elijah's like, kill me now. And God's like, okay, why don't you have a snack? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's pretty. That's pretty deep. So when you when you sit under your solitary broom tree and feel like you wish you no longer had to go on, then take a little nap. Have take a little, a little nap. Have a little snack, and then see, see how, how you, you feel. feel. Maybe you need another snack and another yeah. nap. <laughs> if it's been a really bad day, which it has been for Elijah. Okay, but but for real, what your question, are you asking um, about where my mind goes in terms of resonances? Well, that's kind of where I was headed, but, you know, you can go where you like. I, first, I go to Jonah. Yeah. His, uh, his, at the end of the book of Jonah, when he's also sort of sitting in the shade of his tree. And and it's such, I mean, it's so ridiculous when it comes out of out of Jonah's mouth, but it's like, well, if you're not going to, you know, if you're not going to do what you said you were going to do and I'm going to look stupid, then just kill me now. Like what, you know, what's the point of all this? Very, yeah. very dramatic. Yeah. I think that's a good resonance. And and here you have Elijah, I think, feeling like, you know, he did everything he was supposed to do and he thought he was at the moment of victory. And it turns out this is a terrible thing for him. And so mm-hmm. now he kind of wants to give up. The, the, the outcomes were not what he had anticipated. Maybe. I'm so curious about this line, for I am no better than my fathers. Yeah. yeah. Like, do you think he's feeling at this moment fear or shame or, you know, resignation that that he's not going to be able to be successful in his, his mission? Yeah, I mean, that's such an, an interesting line. and And I don't quite know what it, is supposed to mean where my head goes is when he's talking about my ancestors or my fathers, he's thinking about the line of prophets, mm-hmm. even though Elijah is quite an early prophet, as you know. But the way I trans the way I interpret it in my head is the prophets kind of are perpetually trying to get the people to follow God and do the right thing, and the yeah. people are obstinate. And Elijah thought maybe he was going to be different, he was actually going to be successful. There was a yeah. moment where he got everybody to bow down and say, God is God. 
Mm-hmm. And now it, the whole thing has come, come undone. And it turns out he's just like all the prophets before him in that sense that tried to get people to turn. And yet the people, some of the people anyway, yeah. refuse. How do you yeah. read that? Yeah, I guess, I guess similarly. I mean, it's funny because, it's, I mean, if what makes him think that He's no better, like he's no more successful in his prophetic mission is the fact that Jezebel, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's that Jezebel isn't persuaded or that he is still living on the, on the edges of things. Like he thought this was going to really bring his prophetic voice into the center and Jezebel is still pushing him to the, the outsides. Cause I feel like we don't really know what. This just happened. Like, I feel I feel like it's a little too early to say whether this had any impact on On the people on the people. Mm -hmm. I mean, he killed a bunch of them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the other ones we don't we don't really know. I mean, the you know, Jezebel's in power and she hasn't been persuaded. But I think that's really interesting, Amy. I think that's an important distinction to say. You know, as far as we know, the people have worshiped God back in chapter 18 and the leadership here is angry. I I think that's a helpful correction to what I was saying before. So maybe Elijah's problem is he thought he was going to convert the king and the queen and the people who are in power are still uh, holding on to their traditional way. Yeah. But the people themselves are not in view here. I think that's, I think that's really helpful. And so maybe he has been successful in ways that he doesn't entirely know. This is definitely harder than he thought it was going to be. You know? Yeah. Where my head goes in terms of textual connections, well, there's two in this next little part. The first is that he's asleep kind of in a randomish place, sort of in the wilderness mm-hmm. near Beersheba. So he's fled to the south. Beersheba, as you know, is all the way in the south mm-hmm. uh, of Judah. So he's fled from the northern kingdom of Israel all the way down. And, and and an angel shows up, which reminds me a little bit of the story we read a few weeks ago about Jacob fleeing from mm. Esau. And the divine escalator shows up and the angels are going up and down. I like that. And then, of course, of course, the feeding in the wilderness with bread and water reminds us of the manna text that we read just a couple of weeks ago from Exodus chapter 16. So there's a whole lot of things that are kind of getting brought together. God shows up to people in the wilderness God appears when you sort of, or this isn't, this is the angel of the Lord, but those are hard to distinguish sometimes, as you know, in the biblical text yeah. and the feeding in the wilderness. So there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of resonance that's, that are all coming together right here. Yeah. And he, is he at Horeb here? He hasn't got to Horeb yet, which I think is he so interesting. He hasn't got to Horeb yet. Okay. Yeah. He's just sort of, they were in Beersheba and he left his servants there and went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he's got somewhere it. in the wilderness Presumably south of Beersheba. Right. Okay. And so, but he's he's eating to prepare for his journey of 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. So then that brings up lots of Moses. Horeb yeah. is another name for Sinai that the yeah. Deuteronomist likes. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the things that's fascinating to me in this text. And I, I'm not quite sure. This is as good a place to talk about it as any. Is It, it is never said where Elijah is going, right? right? It, it doesn't say he fled to Horeb. When the angel shows up, the angel doesn't say, get up because it's a long way to Horeb. 
Elijah has just fled, and the angel says, you need to eat because it's a long, your journey's a long one. But nobody has ever said where the journey is to. Mm. And then it's not until verse 8 you get to 40 days and 40 nights, he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And so everybody, like Elijah knew that's where he should go. The angel knew that's where he was going. But nobody ever talked about it. Does that, that to me, that's just really interesting. It is. It's, um, yeah, it's, and, and that in some ways, I don't know, reminds me a little bit of Abraham being called to go. But in that case, it was like, go to the land I will show you. Like, Elijah doesn't seem to have here anyone showing him where to go. He just yeah. has like this internal GPS system that happens to take him to God's holy mountain. Yeah. To me, that's so interesting that there's sort of this, I like that internal GPS, or there's just an intuition or sort of an yeah. innate sense of like, when you're in trouble, you go to the place where God is. And so that's where he heads. Right. It is interesting to me in that light that God is also present to him in a random place in the wilderness, a day south of Beersheba. Mm-hmm. So you get the sense that Horeb was an important place for him to go, but maybe God didn't need him to go all the way to Horeb. Because the next question, which we haven't gotten to yet, is going to be God says, what are you doing here? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like why did you even, why'd you come all the way down here, man? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it does sort of, yeah, it, I, I, lo- I love your question because it raises the question in some ways was like, did God need Elijah to go there or did Elijah need Elijah to go there? Yeah. And sometimes those those things get all mixed up with each other and it's it's hard to tell. But the angel does know that he's he's got to go. He's got some big journey to do. Yeah. And, I mean, it, it's so interesting to try to think about like, yeah, who who knows what when. You know, so Elijah goes a day into the wilderness, maybe because he's afraid or maybe because he just sees how things are going. And so yeah. he's got to get out of there. He is pretty distraught and ready to give up in the desert. And then it just seems, and then, you know, after food, it's like, you should eat because you have a long trip ahead of you. I don't, it's yeah. just, yeah. Did, did he know he was going? I don't know. I think I'm I'm repeating what you already said in a much more halting way, but it's- no. I mean, I think the the thing that we're sort of toying, like the the idea we're chewing on, I think is an important one, because you know Elijah went a day south of Beersheba and then sat down under a tree and asked to die. He was not headed any place. He was headed yeah. into the wilderness to die. Yeah. Then the angel says, "You've got a long journey ahead. You need to eat and drink," but doesn't tell him where to go. And so now he's got the strength to get. To Horev, which was not where he had started out to go. Yeah. Like in my, like one way of reading it that I'm kind of persuaded, maybe a good way to read it is maybe God doesn't care where Elijah's going, but just knows that Elijah needs to go somewhere, <laughs> right? Mm. Like, and so wherever you're going, Elijah, I don't know, but you're going to, I'm going to provide enough for you to get there. You go where you need to go. I'm going to help you get there. And then, of course, where he goes is Sinai, Horev. But I think it's important that God didn't instruct him to go there. God just says, I'm going to support you in your journey. You know, as I was reading it, one of the questions I sort of, or notes that I wrote down in the margin was, 
uh, I found it interesting that like God can or God does miraculously provide sustenance, provide food. And, and Elijah has to eat it. Yeah. Like that, you know, and so I, what, what I wrote down was like, God can't just float, float you to your destination. I mean, like yeah. theoretically, I guess God could do whatever God wants, but yeah. if God wanted Elijah to be somewhere, Elijah has to participate in this yeah. too, you know, like they're, they're sort of figuring it out together. I love that. So Elijah has sort of given up and God has said, I'm going to make it possible for you to get someplace else. Elijah has had to respond, take God up on that offer, and then has gone where he needs to go without God ever really instructing him. And then, and then everybody ends up at the holy mountain. Yeah. You know, this is not the first time, of course, that we've seen Elijah being miraculously fed in the wilderness. We talked about a text right. last year in 1 Kings yep. 17 where the ravens feed him. That was also a, a hilarious podcast. Is that that was, well, it's a hilarious text. <laughs> yeah. I, think it, I think that is a hilarious text. Yeah. I anyway. know you're about to die, but please make me some cake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So though, yeah. So there's the feeding in the Wadi Cherith, and then there's also the feeding in Zarephath. Yeah. So yeah, Elijah yeah. has had lots of miraculous food in his life. And so he, <laughs> here it is again. Food and I don't know quite what the, the connection to Exodus 16 is, but it's clearly there. God sustains Elijah in the wilderness in the way, reminiscent of the way God sustains the Israelites in the wilderness. Yeah. Okay, so Elijah has made his way now to Horeb. You mentioned Horeb is another name for Sinai. It's the name that's used in the documentary hypothesis. It's used in the E source and the D source. Sinai is used in the J source and the P source. For whatever that's worth, uh, it's just another name for the same place, yeah? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so he has arrived there, and then picking up in verse 9b, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Hmm. So one of the things that's so interesting to me here is that this little encounter with God is bracketed by the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Yeah. I'm just, what do you make of that being God's question? You know, in my translation, it's slightly different. It's why are you here? Mm. Which sounds a little bit less pointed to me, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. Especially when you read it the way I did. What are you doing here? <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> why are you here? Yeah. And I think I see it sort of in connection with with Elijah's answer, which I, I find very moving because it's so sort of vague and impractical. Like, yeah. what are you doing here? I am moved by zeal. Yeah. Like, that's not really a 
it doesn't say I'm here because I, you know, I'm looking for this. I need this. I need yeah. you to tell me what to do. Mm. And it doesn't say anything about what he needs. It says what moves him and sort of what the situation is. And then he just stands there while all of this happens. And so I guess, I don't know. I, I guess I, I read that second question as like, will his answer be different? Yeah. The second time? Yeah. We'll have How to see you, whether we'll it is see. different. Right. Dun, dun, yes, dun. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. How do you how do you read those enveloping yeah. questions? I love what, where you went with that. And the, the way I wrote down my question, although it's not the way I asked it, was do you read this as inquisitive or accusatory? Mm. And I think the way you were reading it is kind of God is inquisitive. Like what what brought you to Horev? Elijah, mm-hmm. and he and his answer is because I'm zealous. His answer is I'm because I'm zealous, and it's gotten mm-hmm. me nowhere. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm zealous. I did all the things, and I'm now I'm the only one left. One could also read God's question as accusatory, right? Like you had you had a place to be and a thing to do, and you came all the way down here. Now, if you read it accusatorily, then you have to also remember that God fed Elijah in the wilderness to enable Elijah to get down there. And mm-hmm. so even if it's, why are you abandoning your post? It is God saying, okay, if you need to abandon your post, I'm going to help you abandon your post. And then we'll, and then we'll regroup. I don't, I think that text is open to either of those. I, I'm I, at this moment, I'm kind of leaning toward the inquisitive, like God, God's really interested in what's going on with Elijah and what Elijah and what Elijah needs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a midrash that reminds me of, of the other interpretation that you mm-hmm. just offered. The, the accusatory little, one. Yeah, mm-hmm. the little more pointed one that says that Elijah was too zealous in his mm. desire to prosecute fellow mm-hmm. Israelites and, that, mm. and that, that God tries to change that about him through the process of this, you know, sort of strange theophany experience that he has. Oh, I like that. But then in the end, the fact that he that God names Elijah's successor indicates that like it didn't it didn't work. Like <laughs> you know, that that Elijah is is maybe not sufficiently changed by this. That's interesting because where I thought you were gonna go was Elijah's zealousness has manifested itself in his taking the responsibility for killing a bunch of Baal prophets. Mm. And so that would be good. I like that one better. <laughs> God has said, You are overly zealous and I can't trust you <laughs> anymore. So I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna get other people to do this stuff at the end of the text, which we haven't gotten to yet. But maybe yeah. there's a corrective there. That's interesting to think about. How does this connect to the zealousness here connect to the zeal uh in that previous story? Right. Yeah, zeal is zeal's a tough one. Kind of cuts both ways. Now, what Elijah ends up saying in verse 10 is, I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And then God's response is, Hey, go stand out there, and I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna pass by. What do you make of the way God responds to Elijah's initial concern about I am I alone am left? It reminds me so much of the story of Moses asking to see God's face 
after the golden calf episode yeah. when like God is like, okay, when Moses is like, this is going to be harder <laughs> than I thought it was going to be. And I really, like, you just get this sense, like God needs to know, I mean, sorry, Moses needs to know that he's not alone in this. Yeah. And so he asks to see God's face. God says, you can't see my face, but he tucks him into this little cleft of a rock and passes in front of him. But it, what's so uh, interesting and lovely to me in this passage is that Elijah doesn't quite ask for that. Like, Elijah doesn't know what he needs. Yes. He just lays out his <laughs> the state of things. And yeah. so God's like, well, this helped Moses. <laughs> Let's try this. <laughs> yeah. Now, I love that emphasis. And I had not picked up on that myself that Elijah doesn't, maybe Elijah doesn't know why he's at Horeb. He just knew he needed to be someplace other than where he was. And his zeal has led him there. He doesn't know why he's there. He doesn't know what to ask for. God doesn't know why he's there. <laughs> God doesn't know. But what <laughs> Maybe God Maybe he needs another is, snack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he needs a snack, a nap, and he needs to know he's not alone. And so the way to show Elijah that he's not alone is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up. Yeah. I think that reference you're making to Exodus 34 and the appearance to Moses is exactly the right move. In that text in Exodus, you get the sense that God is like really big and powerful and mm -hmm. the encounter is sort of overwhelming. Here you get that really interesting sequence. Uh, there was a wind, there was an earthquake, there was a fire, and God wasn't in any of those things. Mm. And then, then you get a, I will, then we get a, some sort of a small sound or a silence and there is God. So, while I think those two texts are being pulled together, you're supposed to remember yes. the Moses story when you read this one. They're not the same. Right. What do you make of that difference of the, the I don't know, the size, the grandeur, or whatever it is of God's appearance? You know, it hadn't quite occurred to me this way until you were describing it the way that you just were, but it feels now like almost a, a counterbalance to the zeal and the association of God with big destruction. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that Elijah has inhabited in, mm. you know, in these yeah. past two chapters, maybe the side of Elijah, the side of God that Elijah needs to see is really different than what Moses needed to see. I love that. I love that. So the zealous Elijah needs to see the stillness of God. Yeah. Hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think I think something similar, but not, I don't think it as well. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, when you think about Elijah's story, like he has seen some pretty remarkable things. He's He's been fed in the wilderness on multiple occasions. He's seen a, jar of oil that never runs out. Uh, he has seen fire. He, he himself has called fire down from heaven mm -hmm. and like demonstrated God's power. And so you can kind of understand why Elijah would think that God is in big, powerful moments. Yeah. That's kind of the way God has been present to him. And I, I like that idea that you're raising that God is saying, well, that's like, I am those things, but that's not the only thing I am. Mm -hmm. This last line, uh, 
after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. Mm. Sometimes you hear the, a still small voice. How does the JPS read that? It's the very end of verse 12. Of 12, it says, a soft murmuring sound. Yeah. If you had to, like when in your imagination of the story, like what is Elijah? I mean, maybe the point is you mm. you can't exactly describe it, but what is Elijah hearing? It's so interesting because all of those different translations sound a little bit different in my head. Mm-hmm. The Etz Chaim, which is a, a Jewish commentary, describes it as the paradox of a voiced silence. Yeah. Which just seems so like in keeping with some of the conversations we've had over the past few weeks about God and the nature of God, like I was thinking about God's name and how there is a specific name, like there is something you can point to, but the name is so broad, (laughs) like I exist, (laughs) Yeah, I am what I am or something like that, there, there, I don't know, there's this, um, Okay, so one quick midrash. There's a a midrash about the moment when God is about to give the Ten Commandments to Moses. And there's all this sort of debate about like how much of what's in the biblical text is, is a direct quote from God versus how much of it is Moses giving Moses's interpretation of, you know, of what God said. And there's a Midrash that says the only direct quote from God is the first letter, the letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the, the word I, I am Lord your God. And it describes Aleph. Like we teach little kids that it is, that it's a silent letter, but it's not exactly silent. It is mm. the sound that your throat makes when it like clicks into gear, when it's about to yeah. say something. So like there's all this like anticipation in it, but it's, it's just this vast I love that undefined potential I so love reading, that oh my goodness it's this endless I don't know it's an opening yeah it's an opening that has no closing but I will say that is when you say still small voice I think of of something different you you got so many thoughts going in my head the first one was if you're if you are listening and you're trying to figure out what an olive sounds like, the closest it's a glottal stop is the is the, mm-hmm. the technical term. But if you say the word honor in English, mm-hmm. that H sound is not honor, right? It's honor. And it's that sound that's not actually a sound that's right there at the beginning that, that lets you say the rest of the word. Mm-hmm. So I love that. Like it's a it's an endless, it's an endless potential. Like you don't know what's coming after that. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I go back and forth. Like I love the translation, the still small voice of God. I because I, I like the idea that God speaks, is able to, and sometimes does speak silently and quietly. I also like this translation here in the NRSV, which is the sound of sheer silence. And in the Bible Worm Collaborative, I said, you know, that doesn't make any sense because silence does not have a sound. Mm-hmm. And Terry, who writes our, liturgies for us was like, actually, if you've ever been any place where that is actually silent, silence is actually really loud. And I, I think that's true. Like the, what I was thinking of was one time I went to the Grand Canyon and there was like no one around. Mm-hmm. And so there was no sound. 
but you could hear the fact that there was no sound. It was it was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And so the that the fullness of the silence in which everything is being spoken but nothing is being said. I think that's a really beautiful mm, idea. That's beautiful. There was uh, an exhibit at a museum in Manhattan that I did not get to, thanks very much, COVID, but where you could sign up for time in a room that was completely, completely silent. Like, mm. they had, you know, whatever. And and you could, I don't know, you had a certain amount of time to spend in there. And people had, for some people, it was incredibly distressing. Yeah. And for some people, it was really calming. But it is, we are, we are not aware of how much how much noise there is around us. And so when you really are, yeah, when you really hear silence, it's, it's, it's pretty different. We should all do that. We should, this should be an engaged learning exercise where we all go to a sensory deprivation mm-hmm. or at least an auditory deprivation tank. I don't know what you, I don't, I guess you could probably just get noise canceling headphones really, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, picking up in verse 14, he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Avomaholah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. Whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. All right, so am I, I'm right, yeah, that Elijah's response is word for word the same? Yeah. The only thing that I see different between those two like overall exchanges is instead of it saying, instead of it saying the Lord came to him, he said to him, this time the Lord, it says a voice addressed him. Yeah. That, that's the only difference I noticed between those, those two exchanges. So it's the but voice emerging from the sound of sheer silence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems a little more, for me, it feels a little more sort of like dropped into your body, sensory experience et cetera, et cetera. But Elijah says the same thing. Yeah. So, so to me, this fact that he says the same thing could mean one of two things. One is he's learned nothing. He's, he feels exactly the same way he did before God appeared in the still silence. Mm-hmm. The other is he says the same words, but they signify something different. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thought about, like, has, has there been movement or no movement or do you go somewhere else? That's such a good question. And I think that I am influenced a bit by that midrash that I mentioned before, or or influenced by what comes next. That sort of they seem to go back to this, like, okay, nothing has changed, so yeah, we're just going to go back to our <laughs> yeah <laughs> original, like you know, here's how to execute on the the plan that you started before. Yeah, I don't know. Could it be that Elijah got some sort of like centering from this experience and now is more prepared to go out into the world. But the text really doesn't give us that. Yeah. The text doesn't give us much. What do you feel in your kishkis? (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) 
You don't know the word kishkis? It means like your gut. I did not know that word. I did not know where my kishkis were for sure, but now I do. <laughs> Show us your loins. <laughs> oh, mercy. Okay, so here's where I go. I think Elijah is not able to process what has just happened to him. Mm-hmm. And so he just says the same thing over again. Mm-hmm. God has God has appeared to him in this silence. I mean, follow, following a whole bunch of pretty dramatic things, God has appeared mm-hmm. in the silence. Elijah has said, I'm alone. God has said, you know, here I am indirectly. Mm-hmm. And Elijah then comes back and says, I'm alone. Mm-hmm. And part of where my head goes is, I wonder how often people of faith experience God's presence as being alone. Do mm. you know what I mean? It's like when I was a kid and my mom would say nice things about me and I had low self-esteem and I would be like, well, of course you said that. You're my mom. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. But I didn't, take, I didn't take it on board. And I, yeah. But I still needed my mom to say that stuff to me. Like if she hadn't said it to me, it would have been devastating yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I wonder if Elijah's got a little bit of that going on. He needs to know that God is present, but he can't really take on board the presentness of God. It doesn't, doesn't satisfy the, the aloneness. Yeah. And so he still says the same thing, even though he needed that to have happened. I love that. And I think that's really true. I think that when when you feel alone or abandoned by the world or like maybe you're a failure in your in whatever you're trying to accomplish, the way that gosh, how do I even say this? I was gonna say the way that God shows up, but is is often n- not <laughs> super in your face visible, you know? Yeah. And it's, and especially if your senses are sort of all tied up with your suffering, it is hard to see. And I think you're, I think you're right that Elijah, Elijah, Elijah doesn't quite, doesn't get the full benefit here that, that he could have. It is also true that part of what Elijah says is people are trying to kill me. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Can you be a little more specific than making a little glottal stop sound? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe a, the sheer, a sheer silence is not the most helpful response. <laughs> Elijah thinks like, okay, good, yes. great and all. Thank the you for the glottal stop. The response is very impractical. That is true. Mm-hmm. That is but true. they're still trying to kill me. Uh, <laughs> yes. I read this a little bit in light of the Moses story that we'd read several weeks ago in Exodus 3 and 4 where – Moses keeps raising objections about why he's still yeah. afraid. And yeah. God keeps saying, okay. Like, it's almost like Dayenu, right? Well, it, sh- it should yeah. have been enough that I appeared to you in a bush. It should have been enough right. that I uh, gave you a staff that turns into a snake. It should be enough that I told you my name. Mm-hmm. But, he keep, but God keeps giving the next thing because that's what is needed. I, I'm sort of tempted to read this that way, that the appearance of God in a still small voice should have been enough for Elijah it turns out not to have been enough. Mm-hmm. And so God's going to then. So God the gives him thing. like a, a playbook, like yeah. <laughs> a really specific, like practical. Yeah. Yeah. Goes, goes all the way the other way. Yeah. So let's talk about the playbook. So, so the next thing that God offers after offering a still small voice is to offer, you need to go back. You need to go back. Mm-hmm. When you get there, 
Well, first of all, you're going to go to Damascus and you're going to appoint Hazael as the king of Syria. So you're going to appoint a foreign king, which is kind of a, a deal. Then you're mm-hmm. going to anoint a new king over Israel, keeping in mind that Ahab is currently the king. You're mm-hmm. going to anoint Jehu, who's going to overthrow him. And then you're going to anoint a new prophet, Elisha. And then they're just going to kill a bunch of people, <laughs> right? So first, the foreign king is going to kill people. Then the usurper of the throne is going to kill people. And then Elisha is going to kill people. This text took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> it did. I think yeah. that, I don't know, I have to go back and look at the revised common lectionary, but I don't think that I probably, when I have talked about this text in religious context, that I, I think I've just stopped somewhere along the, about the still small voice or somewhere. The killings, the, here's all these people who are going to help you kill people, are going to kill people for you, maybe is what it says. What, Amy, what do we, <laughs> what do, we do with this? Okay. Here's a thought I had while you were talking that doesn't answer your question, but it's a thought. Yeah. I'm almost, now that I'm thinking about sort of the still small voice and that whole theophany juxtaposed with this, like, it's almost like the first offering was was for Elijah, was like for his own well-being and his own sort of spiritual health and his own mm. groundedness. But when, but it seems in some way like he is so focused on his mission, like what he believes is his call that he just wants to go back to that. Like he's not willing to dabble in, you know, these niceties that he, he wants to get back to work. Hmm. And, and the work, yeah, involves a lot of violence. Mm -hmm. And it's, I just keep going back to our conversation with, with Brent Strawn about like, there are in both testaments, like there are lines and like, we sort of expect God and and later Jesus to be like en- endlessly merciful and kind and soft and gentle and they're not and there yeah. is a right and a wrong and the wrong is seriously wrong and <laughs> you know and so it's not that there's not violence as a possible outcome for for those practices like that that is absolute like those it's out of bounds it's just out of bounds i don't know what to make of that as like a modern practitioner of progressive Jewish faith like yeah. that doesn't doesn't quite work for me although I guess it does raise the question of like what are what are the boundaries and what happens when people are outside the boundaries of yeah you know whatever I what I I think that our traditions call us to see as acceptable or unacceptable yeah I think that going back to that conversation with Brent and you know, part of that conversation, we we were talking about uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, Heschel mm-hmm. and the idea that a God who is not able to take retribution is not a very useful God in situations of injustice. Yeah, and you know, if you go back to what I, one thing I was saying at the very beginning, that this is not simply about religious idolatry, but also about sort of a, a way of life. And I mean, in the very next chapter, I think it is, maybe two chapters later, we're going to see the story of Ahab and Jezebel stealing the vineyard from Naboth mm-hmm. and sort of, a, you know, this acquisitiveness. And so it's not simply that they worship Baal, but it's also that they're exploiting people because, and so somehow this has to stop. And so this is the way that, you know, yeah. like God has to have teeth 
in that yeah. sense. Even in that story you were talking about in Exodus 34, where God says, I've, I you know, show steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me. There's also, I visit the iniquities upon the children, third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Yeah. And so God is a thousand parts steadfast love, four parts visiting iniquity, but it's, yeah. but you got to have both of those parts. One of the things that I, well, so it troubles me in this text that, that, so it troubles me a little bit that God enacts violence, but I, but I can get there in that way that we were just talking about. It troubles me a little bit more that God uses people to enact mm-hmm. violence. So the mm-hmm. king of Aram, mm-hmm. the king of Israel, it yeah. bothers me a lot that God here is saying Elisha, the religious prophet is going to exercise violence. Mm-hmm. Because that seems like religious sanction for violence in a more direct yeah. way. Like we could take the message as it's okay for us to be violent. One way of sort of reading that differently is to say Elijah at the end of First Kings 18 seems to take it on himself to murder the prophets of Baal. God does not instruct him to do that. And then God keeps, God in this text has been saying, look, you are so zealous. You need to learn to be still. And then what God ends up saying is not you go back and kill a bunch of people, but look, let's put the killing off onto other folks, which means you, Elijah, mm-hmm. that's not your job anymore. You got to stop it. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know that that solves all the problems. It doesn't it, solve it, but it's a nice nuance. Mm-hmm. And as far as I'm aware, does Elisha kill people? I don't, I'd have need to go back and read the story of Elisha. I mean, he sends the bears to eat those kids who called him bald. <laughs> That's true because they called him bald. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can sympathize with that, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to send some bears after That's a people. real crime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, like it at least defers it a little bit to say you are no longer to be violent. And so if, if we then read along with Elijah, it's maybe mm-hmm. God is using other people to enact God's violent retribution, mm-hmm. but it's not you. It's not me. Mm-hmm. The other thing I notice in here is that Elijah has two times now said, I am alone. And this very last line, God says, I'm going to leave 7,000 in Israel, all those knees that have not bowed to Baal, which means there are 7,000 other people in Israel who also have not worshiped Baal. Mm -hmm. And Elijah thinks he's the only one. And so I don't know exactly what what you do with that. Like, why does Elijah miss? Why does he think he's the only one? I don't know. Either not paying attention or these folks mm-hmm. are scared or hiding or whatever. But the reality is, even though he feels alone, he is not alone. Yeah. God is with him, as we saw previously. And then there's 7,000 other people who are also with him. That seems important to me. I really like that I- idea that you suggested a moment ago that if there is violence that needs to happen and if it needs to be done by human hands, that it, that at least God has some of awareness of, I don't know, what I want to say is like what it does to people, to our own sort of spirit, to be the person, execu- you know, the, the moral injury or whatever you want to call it, that it causes to someone to be the yeah. person who is acting violently and to see in Elijah like, you can't do it anymore. Yeah. Like you, you'll you'll go over the edge. Like you can't, either because you've already done it or because- mm of your disposition in the world, but that, you know, it wouldn't be this like, gosh, I don't even, oh, <laughs> controlled or moderate violent. I don't, I mean, I don't even, 
I don't know if those categories exist, but that that things can sort of go quickly, completely off the rails, even from a from a plan that was already really challenging to us as modern folks. Yeah, that's a that that's a helpful yeah. layer for me. I think I have come to read this as Elijah's zeal carried him over the edge at the end of First Kings eighteen. He wasn't supposed to have done that, but he was so zealous that he did it. Yeah. God has now said, you need to learn to be quiet. Yeah. Elijah has come back with exactly the same thing. And then God has said, you know what? I'm going to pass the zeal on to other people because mm-hmm. you can't be trusted with your zeal. I, mm-hmm. I think there's something to that. I think that's mm-hmm. rich. Yeah. I think I just yep. said the same thing you said. In, in no, life. and I think I was saying the same thing you are. I mean, I think yeah, we're, we're just saying we're the same thing over of, and over again. <laughs> but I, I think it's... Um, Bible word. that's... <laughs> I think that's I think it's really I think it's real. I think it's real. All right, Amy, now that we've solved all of those textual questions, <laughs> when we think about how this text intersects with contemporary life in our communities that we're a part of, what's the message that you're taking away? I mean, in some ways I feel like we have been moving through the central message in my mind already. But I think what's really sort of, I'm already second guessing myself. I think what's really sort of rising to me is, is this idea that God shows up in different ways for different people at different times, pretty intentionally. And so the fact that, that we may have different experiences of God in the world or different experiences of God at different times you know, like we we really want to we want to put God in a God box and say this is what it looks like to experience God. But this, I don't know, this text really seems seems to second guess that notion and say like, no, God, God sees where you are and wants to <laughs> wants to bring you back to center a little bit. And so, you know, whereas Moses maybe the most humble of the prophets maybe needed to see power, Elijah the most zealous of the prophets needed to see quiet. Mm. That's a message that I I need to sit with that one for a while. Yeah. But I that that that's what I'm seeing in here today. I love that. And so there's something there of if you think that God is only ever about power and zeal, you need to see another side that is still and quiet. If you think God is only ever about stillness and quietness, mm-hmm. you need to recognize that there is a zealousness as well. Mm-hmm. I like that. And it gives us some kind of, yeah, some sort of corrective. Like we're, we can always grow in the in the faith from where we are. Yeah. What about you? Where are you really feeling this text today? Well, I feel like there's so much that's, I feel like there's so much in this text. And what, what we were talking about just a little bit ago about checking on, like having a check on your zeal and when you become overly zealous Maybe it's time to pass things on to somebody, somebody else who has a different perspective or something. I, yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. But where this text really resonates with me, which is kind of different than where I sometimes go, is that image of Elijah just fleeing to the wilderness and wanting to die, mm-hmm. not knowing where he was headed. Mm-hmm. And God showing up in the middle of some random place south of Beersheba and saying, here I am with you, Elijah, and here's some bread and here's some water. You need to renew your strength for your journey. 
but doesn't ex- doesn't give any direction about where the journey should be or what the ultimate goal is. Just yeah. wherever you're going, Elijah, this is not the time to give up. This is the time to renew your strength, and I'm going to do that. And then when you get where you're going, I'm going to meet you there. Mm-hmm. I think there's something so powerful in that about the nature of God as the one who provides even when – and you said several times in, the, in this podcast, like, Elijah doesn't know what he needs. Maybe God doesn't know what Elijah needs, but God is present and offering. Yeah. Here's food. Yeah. Here's water. Here's silence. Here's stillness. Yeah. Here's other people. I think there's really something important about that, that God doesn't always need a, you know, a flight plan. <laughs> God just, wherever, wherever we find ourselves, whatever, it, whatever seems like we need to do at the moment, whether it was because Elijah was afraid or just Elijah saw what was coming and he had to get, had to get out of there, God meets him there and provides the, for, the next, for the next thing. I also think, we didn't talk about this, but the 40 daysness of that, like mm-hmm. it's not that God gave bread every day for 40 days. It's that right. God gave bread on one day that was it's enough like for 40 a really days. really big protein bar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was supposed to sustain you. And so I think there's something about there too about God's sustenance may not always look like manna every morning and meat mm-hmm. every night. It might Sometimes mm-hmm. it might look like you're not going to make it for 40 days. Like 40 days is about how long you can live on on some bread. And so it might just be just enough to get you to the next place, but it, but it is exactly enough. Yeah. I mean, I love what you're saying in part too, because it's, you know, sometimes we have this idea that like God has a, God has a plan for us and a path for us. And we're supposed to, you know, figure out what it is, or God's going to tell us what it is. And this God is very much present with Elijah, but it's not in that kind of directive way. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's right. And you have no, you have no sense that God knows where Elijah is going, and you really don't have a sense that Elijah knows where Elijah is yeah, going. Yeah, for he sure. Just kind of. Yep. Goes there. Mm-hmm. Hey Amos, this was a good conversation this week. What are what are we doing next week? Next week we are reading from the book of Amos that I did not write myself, but maybe I should have. Bobby, I have called Amos. you Amos for a very long time. I don't for know why. For a long time. Yeah. Do other I people have. call you Amos? No. (laughs) No, just you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll read a little bit from chapter one and then a bunch from chapter five. Well, not a bunch. Let justice roll down like waters. Yeah. Mm, Good text, good text. Good text. Well, and good conversation today. A lot to think about. All right, Amy. Good to talk to you. I'll see you next time. You too. I'll see you next time. Bye. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Heather Godsey, Francis Miller, and Joan McPherson. Join us next week when we'll be discussing Amos 1, 1 to 2, and 5, 14 to 24. Let justice roll down like waters. Until then, keep on digging.